Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Colton White. I am the associate pastor here. Uh, and I'm excited to continue our tapestry series with you this morning. It's been a privilege to sit under Matthew's teaching the last few weeks as we started with creation. So we're, tapestry, it's the idea that there are many threads that make one thread. And so we started with creation in week one, as Matthew talked about uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and the new creation, and then the new heaven, and new earth. And then uh, last week, we talked about mercy, as Matthew uh, put us through Genesis 3, and we looked at the fall and God's response in showing mercy to God's people. So I'm excited today to talk about covenant. And really, the idea as we talk about this idea of tapestry is we're talking about biblical theology. And that's revolved around four words, creation, fall, redemption, uh, and then the, the idea of the end of all things and the restoration as God restores us back to himself. And so today we're going to focus in on three questions. So are there any adequate note takers out there where you're like, Colton, I need an outline or I will go crazy? Um, well, here's your outline. We're going to focus in on three questions. Question one is, what is a covenant and where is it in the Bible? That's two questions, but we're, we're counting it as one. Um, and then question two, what is the mystery of the covenant? And then question three is, who is the hero of the covenant? So I'm going to read a couple texts to you, starting in Deuteronomy 29, verse 2. If you want to go there in your copy of Scripture, it will also be on the screen. So we'll read Deuteronomy 29, verse 2 through 4, and then verses 9 through 15, and then Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So let me start with Deuteronomy 29. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand our eyes to see, our ears to hear. And then verse 9. Therefore, Keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God as he promised you. And he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one uh, teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive them their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, about 10 years ago, um, I did my first wedding ceremony, and it was awful. Like, it was the worst moment of my life, and there have been a lot of bad moments in my life. 
Um, it kind of goes down like this. So I was 21, and someone asked me to do their wedding. It was kind of family friends. Went to high school with this girl, and she was getting married. Friends with her family, but the guy had a Jewish background. Okay, so it was kind of like a Jewish Christian, Judeo Christian wedding, and. <laughs> There was all kinds of traditions and words I didn't know how to pronounce and a lot of things that I needed to learn. And I don't know if you've ever given a presentation or a speech or anything like that, but there's always a moment in the presentation or the speech where you're like, okay, if I can get to this part, then I'm good. Like once I get here, it'll be smooth sailing. And so I kind of went through the ceremony, just scared that I was going to mess up and just terrified and shaking. But guys, I nailed it. Like I nailed it. I was the best wedding ceremonial pastor that you could have ever found in that moment at 21 years old. But then I got to that moment where I was like, okay, I'm good. And I let my guard down. You know what I mean? And I got to the part where I was going to pronounce them as husband and wife, where you say, okay, now I present to you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs., right? You know that part? It's the celebratory part. That is easy, right? You say a couple names, they kiss, everyone celebrates and claps. Well, the husband's name was Swan, okay? And I said, I now present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Swanson. And the whole crowd, I'm not kidding, like 200 people, the whole crowd looked at me and went, Swan! And I was beat red, y'all. I was so just more like mortified and, and nervous. And I, I think what happened was, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Parks and Recreation, if anyone's ever seen that. Um, there's a character in there named Ron Swanson, and so I, I think I got that mixed up as a 21-year-old who watched Netflix all the time. Um, and so I think I got that mixed up. Anyways, no harm done. They played it cool. They laughed it off. Um, we're friends to this day, okay? Well, in the, in the reception, this kid came up to me. He's maybe 13 or 14 years old, and he comes up to me and he goes, Colton, does that mean that you have to do the whole ceremony again? And he was like, Essentially, his question was, since you messed up their name, does that make the wedding void? Like, is their marriage void now? And I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, and then it hit me. He doesn't understand how marriage works, right? Like, like he thinks that that ceremony is what actually makes them married. And so I had to explain to him, no, 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 there's a license. And I signed the license and I sent it off to the courts. But it taught me something. And as I was thinking about the idea of a covenant and God's covenant with us, is that in today's culture, in our modern society, we don't really have a category for covenant anymore. Marriage is the closest thing we have. But we kind of work on a contract basis or a consumerist basis of how we relate to one another. We don't relate in covenants. Like, hey, you want to make a covenant with me today? Right? Like, we don't work that way today. And so the first question is, what is a covenant? What is it? And where is it? in the Bible. Well, a covenant is both a personal relationship with someone as well as a legally binding commitment. It's this stunning blend of law and love, and we don't have anything like it. And so we work on the basis of contracts. So this is kind of how we work today. I might say, I will be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be. Does that make sense? So I will be what I be as long as you be what you be. And we kind of work together in that. So if you buy a car, you say, I'm going to make these amount of payments, this amount of payment for this car. And the dealership and the bank says, okay, you can drive that car 
for that amount of money. But a covenant, here's the difference. A covenant says, I will be what I should be, whether you are what you should be or not. And that's terrifying, right? That's absolutely terrifying because you will say, you're saying, I will be what I should be, whether you are or not. That means I will give up my rights and my own desires. I will be committed to you before my own needs. And that's not how humanity works because we work on consumer relationships. For example, when I was a kid, I loved Blockbuster. Like, Blockbuster was vacation to me. And every time we went into town, because we lived in the country, we would go to Blockbuster. And Blockbuster and I had a specific relationship. Does anybody, are there people in here who don't know what Blockbuster is? Wow, I see some hands raised. Okay, um, does that mean I'm getting old? <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, Matthew is shaking his head. Yes, thank you. Um, and so I had a relationship. Blockbuster was a, like a movie store. <laughs> you would go in and there'd be aisles of movies. So I would walk in and um, we had a relationship. They were committed every time to provide me with the newest Ninja Turtle movie right, or the newest Power Ranger movie. And I was committed every time to pay them for that, that I would rent it from them and I would promise to give it back. But then what happened years later? Netflix came out, right? And so I ditched Blockbuster for something better. There wasn't a covenant between us. I could ditch them whenever I wanted. And so I did, and I'm the reason that Blockbuster is now bankrupt. So, um, but that's kind of how we work on these consumer relationships. And we, are, we can be very tempted to take that same mindset and apply it to who our God is and our relationship with God. That you would say, God, I will do this if you do this. Or have you ever prayed the prayer, God, if you just do this, I will never do that thing again. Right? If you just give me this thing, I won't ever do that again. We kind of base it on this health and wealth where, God, if I pray this much, if I do this thing, then you will provide for me. I can earn, right, my blessings. And we work on this consumer relationship, but that is not what we see in Scripture. That is not how God relates to his people, especially in the new covenant, which we'll talk about later. The only way that we can relate to God based on what we see in Scripture is a covenant relationship. That's how he relates to us. So I want to give you a bird's-eye view of the major covenants in our Scripture. There are many covenants, but I want to kind of give you a background of the major ones. We don't have time. We don't have a year to go through the specifics of every single covenant in the Bible, but I want us to do a flyby of this thread of how God has related to his people through covenant, okay? And can you guess where it starts? In the garden. That's where it starts, that God makes a covenant with Adam, and it represents the first divine human covenant that we have recorded in Scripture. Now, the word covenant is never mentioned, okay? You're not going to see the word covenant in there, but the essence, and everyone agrees, the essence of a covenant is certainly there. It's often referred to as the covenant of works. So God promises to grant eternal life to Adam if he obeys the, the creator and refrains from eating from the forbidden tree. Matthew talked about that last week. And Adam is free to enjoy God in the garden. Like that is the blessing upon blessings. And when you hear God, garden, don't think grandma's backyard, think paradise, right? It is the place that you want to be. And he's asked, God asked Adam to be a steward over God's creation, to be fruitful and multiply. And then the second element of that covenant that God says, okay, Adam, if you break this, 
If you eat of the tree, then you will be cursed. You will die. And it's at this point, Matthew talked about last week, that the redemptive plan of God begins in Genesis 3.15, that God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first announcement of the gospel. And then we get to see the redemptive plan of God unfold throughout the Old Testament, that it's all pointing to one person, Jesus. And so in Genesis 6, God makes a covenant with Noah. He says in Genesis 6.18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you, that God binds himself to a covenant with Noah and his descendants, promising never to destroy the earth by flood again, right? And then God gives them what? To secure the promise. He gives them a rainbow, right? And so everyone knows God's work, God's movement in this moment is finished. And he told Noah, hey, be fruitful and multiply. That was humanity's commitment to God. And you move from there and you get to Genesis 12 and you have the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abram, that God would bless Abraham in two ways. One, he would become a great nation and have a great name. And second, that there would be a mediator of blessing that comes from Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, God establishes that covenant, ratifies it between him and Abraham. And Abraham, in response, is being asked, he's saying, saying, be committed to me. I am the one true God. Worship me. And you go from Abraham, and you go where next? To Moses. And you have the Mosaic Covenant, or otherwise known as the Covenant of Law. After the Israelites are freed from slavery, God reestablishes the covenant he made with Abraham in Exodus 19.4. You yourselves have have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, what? You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So if the people of Israel would obey God, then God would keep them as his treasured possession. Here's where we see things introduced like the Ten Commandments, right? This is, this is known as the covenant of law. So the people of God would keep God's law, and in response, God would keep them as his treasured possession. You go from there, and you get the Davidic covenant. So God's covenant with David, okay? David's covenant, it's really interesting. I know this is, I'm getting into like very detailed covenant stuff, so stick with me. This fascinates me because I'm a nerd. And so there's very specific parallels between the covenant of David with David and the covenant with Abraham. You see a lot of similarities that God promises that both will have a great name, that in the future both would conquer their enemies. They both have this special divine human relationship as well as God with Moses, that a seed would come from their line, a royal seed that would mediate this blessing to all nations and that both of their descendants must keep God's law. And the really interesting thing happens here, we don't have time to dive into it, but there is a shift in the biblical narrative that focuses on God making a great people, the people of Israel, and God bringing forth the great king, the Messiah, the seed. There is a shift in the narrative, if you see in scripture, and it's absolutely fascinating. Now, I want to stop there and ask our second question. What is the mystery of the covenant? 
Okay, You're like, what are you talking about? What's the mystery? I don't know if you caught it. Although, and I want you to listen carefully, although a covenant, a covenant is more than a contract, it is not less than a contract. Does that make sense? So it's, it's more than a contract, but it's not less, which means that all covenants do have terms and conditions, if you will, because all contracts have terms and conditions. So if you meet the terms and conditions, then there are blessings. And if you don't meet them, what happens? There are penalties, or in the biblical term, there are curses. So if I don't pay the bill for my car, what's going to happen? They're going to come and take my car away from me. There are penalties. Look, if you look at the verse we read at the beginning, Deuteronomy 29, verse 9, it says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. But then in verse 18, which we didn't read at the beginning, it says, beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So if you violate the covenant, there will be penalties. What's the penalty? Well, verse 20, the Lord, listen to this, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. So at this point, understanding covenant goes to the very heart of the mystery of the Bible, that all throughout the Old Testament, you will see statements like, I cannot bless a disobedient people. Or where God will say, I am a just judge, you must obey me. You see God over and over demonstrate that he will not tolerate sin, and it cannot be in his presence. So when they disobey their part of the covenant, There has to be penalties for that. There has to be a curse. He hates sin. He despises it, and he will not and is incapable of allowing it in his presence. But then you see statements like this, where God says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Right? We love those statements. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Or my love is everlasting. Over and over. It's all over the psalm. So on one hand, you have God saying, I will bless you if you do this. And on the other hand, I will bless you no matter what. So how do you solve that tension? This is the tension between God's judgment and God's grace. And it is the very plot line under all the plot lines of the Bible. Are you still with me? Because we're about to pick it up. You see God making promises to his people and the people of God falling over and over again. And thus, the promises of God are undeserving to the people of God. So the question is that we have to ask, what does God do? God could just allow his people to keep sinning and say, it's okay. Like, it's okay that they are doing that. You can still be in my presence. But then how do you explain his holiness? If he's incapable of allowing sin in his presence, then how, how's he going to do that? And then on the other hand, he can't just <laughs> give up on his people, right? Our God is faithful. So how do you explain that? And we tend to fall on one side or the other, some stronger than others, but we have a tendency in how we relate to God 
to fall on one of these sides or the other. What do I mean by that? Well, some of you might say, yes, you need to obey God. And yes, you need to be good. But in the end, God is just going to love you anyway. He's going to accept you as is. In a world where there are no absolute truths, this is kind of the go-to. God will just accept you as is. Or on the other end, you might say, yes, God is very loving, but in the end, you need to be good or he's not going to love you. And we tend to fall on one of these spectrums, right? Some further than others, but this is the struggle that we have is instead of following the biblical narrative that we'll see in a second, we kind of tend to pick one. And here's the danger with that. On one end, you're giving yourself a free pass to do whatever you want, thinking that at the end of the day, God's grace will still be sufficient for you. And on the other end, you hate yourself. (laughs) And you are tired and you're exhausted because you can never live up to God's law. And you are busy chastising others who aren't as holy as you are. So neither end works. This is the tension. Law and love. I love it. In Judges 2, we're not going to read through Judges. It's just a couple verses. Relax. Um, in Judges 2, in, in, in verse 1, God says, I, I will never break my covenant with you. He says that. He says, I will never break my covenant with you. And then in verse 20, so just a little bit later, he says, it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because my people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their, and it goes on, and essentially he removes the blessing that they were enjoying from them. So you see this tension in scripture. So how do you resolve it? Deuteronomy 29, 13, we we read it earlier. That he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What's he talking about? What did he swear What did he swear to them? Well, he's talking about Genesis 15. So in your Bible, go with me to Genesis 15. And and I just got to say, if you can understand Genesis 15, then a flood of joy and hope will enter your soul like you have never known before. The realities of what's about to happen, what we're about to read, can and will transform your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 15, God has promised Abram land, he's promised him a son, and he's promised him a blessing. And Abram responds and he's like, okay, you've promised these things to me, but how can I trust you? How do I know you're going to give them to me? In verse 7, 15, 7, he said to them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. <laughs> young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Okay, this sermon just took a weird turn. What is happening? Um, you read that text, and you're like, what? This, this text is going to change my life? What is happening here? Well, God says, I'm going to give you this land. Um, And Abram responds, how do I know for sure? And God commands him to just start gathering animals, right? Which is kind of random. He just starts gathering animals, and then he starts cutting them in half. What in the world? Well, this is a cultural thing that Abraham understands that we don't. This was the practice 
of making a covenant. That's what's happening here. Today we sign a piece of paper for a contract, right? During this time, you would cut up animals, line them up with an aisle in the middle, okay? And there was a name for this, and there's other places in Scripture where this happens. It was called passing through the pieces. And what's happening here is they are acting out the consequences of the curse. So they're saying, if I break my part of the covenant, may this happen to me. May I be ripped in two. This would happen all the time with lords and peasants. Lords would would commit to uh, care for and take care of peasants or servants, and a servant would swear loyalty to the Lord. And they would pass through the pieces together, making a covenant and saying, if I break my part of the covenant, may this happen to me. We see this moment in Jeremiah 34. Uh, 34, 18, where it says, the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So in Genesis 15, the intention is for God and Abraham to make a covenant together by walking through the pieces, which you're like, cool. And if either of them would break that vow, they are declaring, may this happen to me. May I be torn in two. But something interesting happens. When it comes time for them to pass through the pieces together, God makes Abraham fall asleep. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God makes Abraham sleep, and then God shows up. In verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. So this was how God would show up in the Old Testament. There would be fire and smoke. It's the burning holiness of God and the mystery of God showing up in that place. And it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. And God doesn't look at a sleeping, think about it. God doesn't look at a sleeping Abraham and go, hey, get up. It's time to do the covenant. He doesn't wake him up. What does God do? He passes through the pieces alone. And there we have, understand me, there we have the most important moment. This is the gospel. By passing through the pieces alone, God is saying, Abraham, if I break my covenant to you, may this happen to me. And Abraham, if you break your covenant to me, may this happen to me. This is the heart of the gospel. That, that Abraham, if you don't obey me, if you worship other gods, if you don't say committed to me, if you're not faithful to me, if you sin, may I be ripped apart. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? That's the story of our Bible, is that time and time again, we are unfaithful to God while he is faithful to us. Does God keep his promises? Absolutely he does. Do we keep ours? No. And thousands of years later, God would come to earth in his flesh, and he would sit on a, lay on a cross, and he would take the punishment that we deserved. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. And in his last moment, do you remember his final words on the cross? John 19, 30, when the When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. (laughs) 
it is finished. So who is the hero of the covenant? It's Jesus. It's the God of the universe who put on flesh, who came from perfect heaven to broken earth. That this is the tension, right? This is the answer to the tension between how God can both be fully loving and fully just. That in that moment, you have the perfect display of God's justice for a people that would sin against him, but also God's love who would be faithful to them no matter what, that when we don't keep our end of the covenant, there is justice for that. But there is also perfect love for a people who are not faithful. This is the gospel. And understand this, that when he looks at you, we are so consumed with thinking, man, God could never love me. You don't know what I've done. Or I know that he, he like will give me blessing every now and then, but at the end of the day, he doesn't really like me. Understand something. If you are a believer, if you have committed yourself to Christ, then Christ's righteousness, the blood that he shed on the cross, literally covers you. And so when God looks at you, he does not see the sin that we consume ourselves with so much, but rather he sees the blood of a perfect, spotless lamb that died. And you are saved, and you are rescued, and you are renewed and restored. It's the perfect love and justice of Jesus. It's the culmination of every single thread that has ever come from the Old Testament that points to a Christ who loves and cares. It's the plan of redemption. He's the one who stood in your place when you deserve to take that punishment, when we did not keep our end of the covenant. But then Jesus' death and resurrection brought us something new. And the new covenant. That's why in Luke 22, 20, it says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's at the Passover. So what is the new covenant? I read it for you earlier. That God says, I will write my law on your heart and your sin will be no more. Let me pick up in, in 32. It's not like the covenant that I made with, their, this is Jeremiah 31 not the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here's what he says. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what are the implications? Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant, and we have now a new covenant. And what are the implications of that? One, it eliminates our ability to participate in a cultural Christianity that has no real love for God, our desire to display his glory. What does that mean? Let me say it again. It eliminates our ability to participate in a cultural Christianity that has no real love for God, our desire to display his glory. So the Old Covenant was written on what? Stone. And the Ten Commandments and other things. In the New Covenant, the law is written on our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. I will put my law in your heart. I will take that heart of stone from heart of flesh, heart of stone, and make it a heart of flesh. Someone who's entered into the New Covenant with God has the law written on his or her heart. Listen is incapable 
is incapable of living a cultural Christian life. Where church is about status. Where if I think, if I just pray this prayer, then I'll be okay with God. If I just show up and go to church, then God and I will be good. If his law is written on your heart, your heart is transformed. The new covenant produces believers who have their desires and affections absolutely stirred for God. That's why Paul says, the old is gone and the new has come, right? That when God's law is written on your heart, we are transformed. We are transformed. Second, the new covenant produces a confidence in us to approach the throne of God. It produces a confidence. In the old covenant, you had two things. You had a limited admission, like limited admission to the presence of God. So being in God's presence was very limited. And then second, you had a distant encounter with the glory of God. So all throughout the Old Testament, you have flawed men meeting with God, right? Flawed men, Moses, David, on and on. Flawed men meeting with God and communicating what God has said to his people. Moses, the Levites, Samuel, the rest of the prophets. The normal person had very limited access to God. And even the prophets had limited access to God. A priest would go into the temple, the place where God dwelt, and he would make a, a sacrifice on behalf of the people, right? It's Moses when he goes into the tent of meeting while the rest of the people are waiting outside. And he comes outside and his face is glowing. It's a distant encounter with the glory of God. And so you have these, these elements where, where God is accessible, but it's limited, right? Well, in the new covenant, Everyone has access. <laughs> Those walls are absolutely broken down. All people will know him, not just the elite, not just the few, but all have direct access to God through Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 10 again. Katie read it for us earlier. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water that we are reconciled to God through a flawless man. Where in the old covenant, we had fallen men with limited access. Now we have a flawless man coming on our behalf and advocating by his blood. Jesus is no mere teacher. He's the perfect teacher, the covenant keeper, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And because of what he has done, we have direct and unlimited access to the presence of God. You can enjoy him. You can enjoy God. It's okay. His blood has covered you. And those fears and anxieties that you have running around in your head, and in your heart, the apathy that maybe overtakes you, you have direct and unlimited access to a perfect, holy, and loving God. And you are free to enjoy him. You are free to enjoy him. We also have a direct encounter 
with the glory of God. Whereas in the Old Covenant, it was distant. Now it is direct. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And he says this, not like Moses. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, there is freedom. And we all, listen, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree or another. That where they... Previously, there was a distant encounter with, the glo- with, with God, the glory of God. Now there is a direct encounter with the glory of God. The new covenant guarantees that you have direct access to the presence of God and a direct encounter with the glory of God. And so let me say this to finish, that every single person in here, my hope for you is that when you think about how God sees you, when you think about how he thinks about you, that you would remember Genesis 15. That in that moment, in the plan of redemption, God walked through the pieces alone. And that our story, the story of humanity, is continual rejection of God and a continual love and pursuit by God. And now our response (laughs) and, and, and our desire that we pray would be, man, a running full speed ahead to the presence of God and encountering the glory of God. That you would see, you would know and understand his presence, that you would see his glory, you would see who God is, and you would go, yes, he is better. Nothing else really does not compare to who our God is and the sin that you so tightly want to hold on to that you don't want to give up because, one, it's hard, but two, you enjoy it, that you would see it as so worthless and such a waste of life that you would go, yeah, I want him. He is better.